911, what's the nature of your emergency? Is that me? Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good morning, police, fire, military, and families, and to everybody who is listening in on the Tactical Living Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton, and I know you know very well how much I love Tuesday mornings because I am not alone on Tuesday mornings, and I'm always super grateful that somebody decides to gift me with their time, especially this early in the day, and today is certainly no exception. And I think it's very important for us to start out today's episode, today's interview in a way that's a little bit different because today we're going to be talking about something that is super, super sensitive to a lot of people, and that is addiction. Anytime that I have a guest on the show, I like to kind of snoop out all their profiles and try to find out everything that I can about them. And our guest today is certainly no exception. And the difficult part that I had about today's interview is that because we are talking about addiction, I do not have any personal experience when it comes to being addicted. However, I did have the advantage. The, the guest that we have today was actually introduced to me by a friend of both of ours, and he interviewed with him yesterday. So I got to kind of tune in on that interview and check out some of what was discussed and kind of use that as a little bit of motivation. And one thing that was talked about was that we are all addicted to something. And I think that is a really good preface to be able to frame today's today's interview, because as you listen to this, I know that there are people who will, if they can be super truthful and honest with themselves, are addicted to something as an individual. And I know that unfortunately, we all have people in our, our world, our sphere of influence who are also struggling with addiction. So I'm just going to request of you, good morning, everyone, as you listen to this, that you open up your heart and whether this applies to you or not, it can most certainly apply to somebody in your life. And without any further ado, I would like to introduce you to my good friend, Mr. Brock Bevel. Brock, how are you? I am so honored to be here, Ashley. Thank you. Super, I, I really, I'm super excited to talk to you guys. We are so happy to have you. And as you listen to this, Brock is actually a retired police officer turned to addict. We're going to get into that story, turned into recovering addict. And now you are an addiction specialist and you are just building this incredible platform. It, it, it's amazing to be able to kind of scope out people when you first get to know them. But when I was looking at a lot of your content and the things that you're doing, you have a challenge and we're going to talk about that too. And, and you're doing so much outreach and just so much good based on the terrible, really awful experience that you had to face yourself in order to be able to gift that back to other people. So if it's okay, can you just start out by telling us a little bit about your backstory? Yeah, absolutely. I come from a, a huge family, eight brothers and sisters, born and raised in Scottsdale, Arizona. Wanted to be a police officer all my life, right? I, I was telling Garrett yesterday, I, I when I was a little kid in third grade, I remember writing, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a police officer, you know? And the reason was, as I went through my dad's closet, I was snooping one time and I, I came across his uniform. And that was the first time that I knew my dad was a cop. At this mm -hmm. time, he had moved on. He was now in education. He was a coach. And he, that, that was past. But I remember the feeling of putting that uniform on in the closet, you know, and I'm like the hat with the badge on it back old school, old school leather belts, you know, and I was like, I was enamored by that feeling. And so as I, as I grew, I was, I grew up in a super strict home, religious home. Uh, mom and dad were very, very heavy on us, very hard on us, but, 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 um, they, they, they had control of the family. 
And so that's, I mean, when I became a police officer, that's what I enjoyed most about working narcotics is the opportunity that I could take on a different life in a way. And those out there who have worked undercover understand what I'm saying is like at home, I can be one guy, but when I go to work, I'm a totally different guy, you know? And so that was what I was most excited about was being able to utilize those skills. And so in the department, I noticed right away, I didn't like basic patrol, right? I hated going from call to call. And some people love that, but I, I, I didn't love the traffic stops. I didn't love going to uh, like a neighbor dispute, neighbors fighting over where you put the fence or my do- your dog pooped in my yard. Like that stuff didn't excite me, but arresting guys who were under the influence was, was exciting to me. So that, that's kind of where my story starts in a way is um, I loved it. I, I loved being a police officer. I loved that, that persona I got to carry. I loved feeling like I was different than everybody else. Yeah. As, as you guys listen to this, good morning to everybody who's just tuning in. Brock is an addiction specialist, and we're going to get into a little bit about how that even came to be. But I just want you to make sure that you're feeling super comfortable dropping any questions, any comments, and, and really engage and take advantage of Brock's time because he is certainly sharing sharing a lot of value with us this morning. Now, now I think it's cool. It's so like I could picture this little baby Brock hanging out in, in the closet and, and trying on his dad's police uniform. But the fact that you had only then discovered that that's what your dad did. And, and that was really kind of this catalyst for you to become a, an undercover police officer is just really, it's a really sweet story. So thank you for sharing yeah. that. And um, can you, can you kind of talk us through a little bit about the moment in your life when police work changed completely? So I had a couple in incidents. This one, I was in, a, in involved in an officer involved shooting. Okay. And I, re- I remember it was a, it was December 27th. It was during the DUI task force. Our officer had tried to make a traffic stop on one of our major highways that go through Arizona, US 60. And the guy took off and he's in a conversation with our dispatch saying, Hey, you can't arrest me. You can't stop me. This is going to be my fourth or fifth DUI. I can't go back to prison. I'm not going out like this. You know, all those stories. Long story short, he comes back into town, gets stuck in a cul-de-sac, and now he's facing us and we're doing a felony stop on him, right? And and what was crazy was I can tell you not all investigations are perfectly done, but this one was textbook. He got out of the car. I mean, we we tried to talk him down. We went hard hands. We beanbagged him, tased him. The canine bit him. We pepper sprayed everything that you could use as a police officer at this point in time. Then he got back into his truck, drove at us, and I had to. I shot him through the windshield and killed him. And I remember when we pulled him out of the car, out of his truck, and laid him on the floor. I remember how angry I was because I'm like, dude, it's December 27th. You have a ton, just after Christmas, you have a ton of people that love you. What are you doing? Like in my mind, I'm going through this. I'm like, who the hell are you? You know what I mean? Why is this drug? Because we knew he was drunk. We knew all that. But I but I was so angry with it that he made me do this. And, and I felt like, you know, and then fast forward a couple months when I'm in a disposition with his mom and dad and sister. And they're, you know, they ask questions. But at the end, when we were wrapping up, the mom asked me, hey, can I ask you a personal question about that night? 
my attorney's like, hey, don't answer it. And I'm thinking, I'm a parent, you're a parent, like you need to know this stuff, right? And she asked me point blank, if you had the opportunity to do again, would you have killed my son? Man, that's a deep question, right? I mean, you don't want to say the wrong thing from the mom, but I said, absolutely, that was my job. I had to do it, right? And as I walked out there, I'm thinking, where's the ownership on this guy? You know, like he caused it. He caused he caused that addiction. He caused that moment to where I had to make that decision. And so I kind of started getting this like uh, disdain, this energy towards it. And then fast forward even in a little forward in April this of the next year, I was, I'm going to make this story short or this story short, but basically <laughs> I, we were working a confidential informant. And she told us about this drug deal that was about to go down, that a mom was bringing her 12 year old daughter to the scene. She was going to exchange the daughter for sex for drugs. And as I'm, as I'm going to this scene, I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm a parent. How in the hell do you get to a point to where you're prostituting your daughter for drugs, for your own habits. So you can see how my mind just was spinning, right? And we got to the scene, we got the girl, uh, mom didn't want to go back to jail. So she ended up throwing her truck in reverse and running myself and my partner over. So I sustained a broken foot, blown out left knee. And that right there was the moment of, of my demise. If you would say, I went through numerous knee surgeries, um, I really tried to rehab to get back to work. And ultimately, the department said, you're unfit for duty. We've talked to the doctor. Your knee is too damaged and you're a risk. You're a liability to the department. And I'm looking at myself going, wait a minute. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm good at what I do. What do you mean I'm not fit? And they told me, what happens if you get in a foot pursuit? You have to jump a fence, you land and blow your knee out. Now what? And I'm like, man, I get it. So they retired me. Right. So imagine, imagine going from like this high level, loving it to changing your kids' diapers. Not that that's a bad thing, but the level of energy was different. And now I'm like from this really cool person where I, you know, that's what I thought that everybody knew me, everybody wanted to talk to me to now just being normal. And I didn't know who I was. And I went through some serious depression and sadness and I lost my connection. You know, you talk about connections, the biggest thing with addiction, right? I need that connection. And I had just lost the biggest connection of my life, which were those brothers. And I had lost connection with my family because of that. And so what I noticed was the opiates filled a major void in my life. They took all that sadness and all that sorrow away. And so that for, <laughs> excuse me, for me, that was really hard, right? Because I know that I was alienating myself from my family, but I couldn't stop. I didn't have the power to stop on my own. And so that went on, actually for 10 years, that opiate addiction took me. So I, I went through a divorce with my wife, my kids went through it. I mean, shoot, I'm I'm years removed from that and I'm still having effects from the trauma that I caused on my kids from that. So so I understand it and I I know what people out there are going through. I know where 
that addiction can take that mind, you know, and I always felt like I was a pretty mentally tough individual, but I just felt powerless over this substance. Yeah, that, that is such a powerful story. And I, I really want to commend you and, and thank you and tell you how proud I am for you to be so open and vivid with this, because I know that as, as you listen to this, for everybody listening in on the live right now, and if you're listening to this after on the podcast, if, if we're all honest, there are times like that where things don't turn out the way that we thought they would. And I, I know that for many of the clients that I work with in law enforcement, people who maybe retire or have circumstances change to where they're no longer able to identify with that profession, it changes everything. And so mm -hmm. for you to admit that addiction is kind of what, what took that over. I think that it's really eye-opening for, for a lot of people. Um, let's see. <laughs> I knew it. I knew he had to be in undercover work, although the beard's too OPT now. <laughs> OPT uh -huh. now. Uh, too good now. Good morning, everyone. Please stay safe out there. Brock, you're so right with that. The anger that comes afterward is so real for so many. The question I've heard tune after time, I think it's supposed to be time after time, is why did you make me do this? I can really relate to this, Brock. It happened to a similar degree when I returned. Now, we talked about the kind of the depths of dealing with something like addiction for 10 years after you being this, I would consider high profile, high energy police officer. So tell us where the rock bottom was and what happened after that. Oh, man, I have two rock bottoms, right? The first one was when I lose my kids, I had I had like partial custody of my kids. Mm -hmm. I was driving up to the Salt River Canyon and I was in a, and, and those who have felt this depression can understand it. I was probably at the lowest point of my, my life. I'm living in the valley. My kids are four hours away. I didn't have constant access to them and I was just going through it mentally. Um, I was sad. I, I, I compared to like this big swimming pool. It was empty and I'm just throwing buckets of water in there trying to fill these voids. Right. And I'm driving up there and I'm just I'm in it. And I grab my service weapon and it was it was in my center console and I put it up to my head and I'm, I'm ready just to like I just wanted it to end. Right. I didn't want to like kill myself, but I wanted the shit to end. Yeah. You know, and 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 so I hear my son, my son, I get emotional talking about this, but I hear my son tell me, say, Dad, you're not a chump. You're not going out this mm -hmm. way. And I'm like looking around going, oh my gosh. I mean, I was the only guy in the vehicle, but I hear him like, we're talking. And so at that moment, I realized, hey, there's some bigger thing for me. So I put my gun away and then I, you know, went and visited my kids. And then, and, and then that, that didn't end it. A few years later, this is where my, this is where everything kind of changed. I went into my, my bathroom like I did every day. I usually had the pills next to me. But on this morning, I went to my cabinet, opened my medicine cabinet, grabbed an opiate, grabbed some water, closed it. And at that moment, when I closed it, that mirror shined into my bedroom. <laughs> and I'm sitting there looking in this mirror going, oh, my heck, dude, what has happened to you? You're living in a crack house. The smell, the look, the vibe of what I was looking into my into my bedroom, into my home was a disaster. But yet my pills were perfectly in line. I knew how many pills I had. I knew exactly. So I got mad. And this, this actually is where I made a big mistake. And this is where I would tell people that I didn't do it right. But because I'm that A-type guy, I just got pissed off, opened the cabinet, grabbed all the bottles, and then poured them down the toilet and flushed them. And then it was that moment of, oh, shit. 
I have no more pills. And if I, I make the joke, if I could have got down in that toilet and swam and recovered them, because that's how desperate you get. Right. And, and it, at that moment in time, I like, you know what? I got to like, take this on. I, I'm ready. I don't have any more pills. I just got a refill. I'm not going to go back to the doctor. This is, this is a sign that it's time. And there's an interesting thing that I like to talk about. There's a difference between being finished and being done with addiction. You know, we talk about like, hey, my son finished the race. That doesn't mean he's done, right? Or you finished the test. Doesn't mean you're not going to have another one. But when you're done with addiction, you're done. And I felt like that was my, that was my, my standing point right there where that line was drawn in the sand and it was go time where I had to really make that really had to make that decision. So honestly, it took me seven days. I, I sat in my shower, in my bathroom, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. I, I, I mean, if anybody knows about opiate withdrawals, I, I crapped myself. I urinated myself. I was throwing up violently. I've, I've never been so cold in my life. I've never been so hot in my life. And I've never thrown up so much where my insides felt like they were going to shoot out my mouth. Like I didn't have any more energy, right? And day three, I remember I, I tried to pick a fight with God, you know, and I'm laying there saying, okay, listen, if you just, it, this, this agreement that I've made a thousand times, hey, just let me get through this. And I promise you tomorrow I'll, I'll never use again. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, dude, just get me up because I need to go take another pill just to squash this pain a little bit. Right. And all those who are addicts out there going, dude, I've been through that, man. Like I've made these promises, these deathbed confessionals. You're, I'm a, I just got to get through this moment. And I heard I heard him talk to me and saying, hey, Brock, you, you haven't begun. Because hmm. I knew in the back of my mind, if he had let me up or if I had been able to get up and get out, I would have found I would have found some something. I may have turned to heroin because I already knew about it. But. I went through seven days and then that was what happened. I, I, I literally had a conversation with him. I said, okay, here we go, God. I'm not, I'm not making the decisions here, but I'm asking you either let me, let me get out of this world, like take my life because I just don't have any more energy. I, I can't, like I'm hurting so bad or give me some power so I can change people's lives. Like I, I know what I'm going through. I'm through the worst. Let me, let me get through. And that power came in my body and I was able to walk out of that bathroom. But there was some major takeaways that I noticed that I would like to share. And the first one was nobody was coming to save me. Right. I had no team like in the police department when I was working undercover, if the shit hit the fan and I was on the other side of the door, I knew my team was coming through that door. I had a rip signal. I had a team. I had a plan. And in this moment in time, I had no plan and I had alienated everybody or they didn't know I was an addict because I was so good at hiding it. I mean, mm. I had mastered it over the years. I knew what to say. I knew how to talk. I knew the exact right things to say. Right. So that's what scared me is like I knew in my mind, like nobody was calling me. Nobody was coming to save me. Nobody was kicking my door and, and I had to fight alone. And that was that was a lonely, that was a lonely existence. Hmm. And so that, that's, that was kind of one of those turning points where you got to figure this, this out moving forward. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. 
This story hits home on so many levels. Thank you for sharing. You look sleepy, Ashley. I am sleepy. Yesterday was most certainly one of those makeup Mondays. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. <laughs> so Brock, you now have this incredible platform where you've taken everything out late last night, weren't you? Yes, Clinton and I had um, a, a late night last night. You have this platform that you've created based on everything that you've done, all of your experience. And now you're you're an expert in this field and you're a no bullshit kind of person. And when I when I look at the in, sort of indoctrination elements of your program, you lay it out and, and you very blatantly say that that nobody is coming to save you. And it is your choice. And for everybody who is listening to this right now, if anything that that Brock has shared has resonated with you and if it's not for you personally, maybe somebody that, you know, I, I know I share openly, I have brothers who suffer from substance abuse issues um, to the depths. So how can somebody maybe reach out to you and get to know a little bit about the work that you do to see if it might be a good fit for them? So I have a website, uh, chasethevase.com. I have a 30-day challenge called um, chasethevasechallenge.com. And then I'm on all the social media platforms under Brock Bevel or Chase the Vase. And I'm pretty easy to find. My email is chasingthevase.com. So I kind of keep it really simple. And and the reason I, I get asked a lot why I do a 30-day challenge is it's hard for law enforcement and it's hard for first responders, veterans to come to a, go to a program, to take 30 days out of their life and go to a program. So I have taken all the information I've learned as a police officer and I packaged it so all of the terms I use – I I have packaged it into recovery. So day one, they come in, I give them a ch- I, we brief, I give them a challenge, they take the challenge home with them. They work the challenge. And the next day they report back to the team and they share what they went through. They debrief it. And then day two, they get a new challenge. So every day we're building blocks. And so it's something that they can do along with their jobs so while they're still getting recovery. And a lot of times, People only need accountability and they need that person to say, hey, let's get back on track, right? You got this. You just kind of forgot who you were, right? And so that's where we push them. We get them 30 days. If they want to go further in it, they can. But a lot of times I just need 30 days to regroup, right? And so that's that's the reason you don't have to leave your home. You don't have to go and and a lot of law enforcement, the, the embarrassment or that shame that they feel like that stigma that they put on themselves. Hey, I don't want to have to go to a program, man. I'm 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 not that guy. And I get it. And that's that's why we do it the way we do it on Zoom. So it, it seems to be very effective. They develop a good team amongst each other and they they re- remain lifelong friends. It's a beautiful thing. And as you listen to this, I love the confidentiality aspect of it and being able to incorporate recovery from addiction into your lifestyle instead of having this frame of mind where you have to alter everything and recalibrate your lifestyle to fit being able to recover from addiction. So that is amazing. And I do encourage you if ever, and this isn't just for police, Brock, you work with, with multiple. Okay, cool. So if you're listening to this and this is something that resonates with you, I, I would encourage you at least take the first step, chase the base challenge 
Um, I was looking at it last night. I believe it's a hundred bucks, a hundred bucks. I could literally be the catalyst to changing your entire life, which will be absolutely nothing in retrospect. And Brock, you are living proof of that right in front of us right now. And I, I truly want to thank you for that. Thank you for your time. Thank you to everybody who is reaching, uh, reaching out to us, engaging, and please feel free to, if you have any questions, even reach out to Brock directly. He is an incredibly friendly guy and he thank would love you. to answer any questions that you have. So I hope everybody has an amazing day know that I am sending you a long, tight hug. And Brock, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. Thank you.